Welcome to Legends Cast, a podcast about the cards, the meta, and the community of the Elder Scrolls Legends. This episode is sponsored by Team Rankstar and Inked Gaming. Visit TeamRankstar.com for all the latest Tesla news and visit Inked Gaming and use the code TRS12 to get 12% off your next order of customized gaming gear. Welcome to Legends Cast, a podcast about the cards, the meta, and the community of the Elder Scrolls Legends. We're super glad to have you listening with us today. My name is Mark Lutz, outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm one of your co-hosts, and with me this evening, I have our uh, our other co-host, Dead Broke Nerd. Dead Broke Nerd, how are you doing this evening? Doing really good. I uh, have had plenty of time to actually play card games the last couple days, and that's a big change, a big step up from the last... Uh... I don't know, a couple weeks. So I've been playing. I've been playing a bunch of Tesla, a bunch of Mythgard. I've been rebuilding decks uh, for L5R for my Thursday night uh, group, and so I'm just ready to. I'm just jamming so many card games. It feels so good. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of card games to keep track of in your brain. It is. Um, it is. And I didn't say I us, did it well. <laughs> <laughs> just did. With us tonight, um, which we talked about last week, um, returning to the show is Endozoa. Endozoa, how you doing, brother? I'm good. I'm good. I've had a pretty solid couple of weeks and, um, you know, I've been enjoying Tesla this week and I'm looking forward to where the game's going to be. Um, I think I've definitely just been reminded uh, about the things that I do really love about the game and feeling some appreciation for it for sure right now. Wow, that's that's good. That'll leave us with an optimistic message this week towards <laughs> yeah. uh, towards Tesla. That's a good thing. Now, um, we, we there was no was there no warp meta this week, or was it just not broadcasted this week? Uh, I didn't play in it, but there, there was one. There, in, yeah, uh, it was okay, not broadcasted, yeah. but there yeah. was an event. There was one, so I don't know who won that one. But the previous two warp metas, you won both of those back to back. Is that the case? There, there was there was one in the between. week there was one in between but basically I won the the last qualifier in October and the October monthly final back to back. Wow, that's that's awesome. Well, the good news is that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, but before we get into exactly what's going on, um, DBN man, what have you been? What have you been playing? What have you been messing around with in Legends? Uh, specifically with Legends. Yeah. Well, I mean. Yeah. No, you don't I mean, want to talk about it. No, no, Legend. no, no. I mean, I guess it's a Legends <laughs> podcast. Uh, <laughs> it, it is. It yeah, is. If you yeah, want to talk yeah. about L5R, I get it. <laughs> well, I really do because there's some pretty huge uh, kind of meta warping stuff in L5R that's had my brain in overdrive the last couple of days. Um, so it, it's pretty exciting on that front. But no, uh, for Tesla, I actually um, I didn't stream at all this week. I've just been having weird work hours. Um had a couple morning shifts, which is unusual for me, so I haven't gotten to stream. Uh, but I did get to play a little bit of two two things mostly. One is Orc Warrior, and that's just for fun. I was like, yeah, I like tribal synergies, and I, I, I previewed the Marauder Chieftain after all. or uh, uh, Yeah, I think that's what it's called, Marauder Chieftain. And I was like, all right, I want to mess around with orcs and have some fun with that. And so I, I've been doing okay with that, and uh, it's fun, but really more than anything else has been uh, sorcerer bone armor OTK. 
uh, and mm -hmm. trying to get mm -hmm. that as efficient as possible. And so I've been putting a lot of uh, time into that one and trying to like, you know, have have that awkward balance of like I need to survive early game aggro, but like the OTK can come online pretty darn early uh, compared to a lot of other OTKs. Now, of course, like there's that situation of well you need to have an open lane like a guard in front means you have to use mana on his negation which you know disrupts you because like typically it feels like you need two bone armors and a ring uh in order to accomplish it just straight like from hand uh and then of course you need a creature that's stuck on board so like but it, it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel as hard as a lot of the other otks that i i've played around with simply because like you can kind of get some chip damage in and and work towards that while eventually assembling the pieces, and you don't have to assemble that many pieces. Uh, but the main thing is, like, okay, Withered Hand Cultist comes down, oh, crap. Uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> running Channel Storms and Lightning Bolts, and, like, uh, the creatures I have don't have high attack, so it's, I'm not even getting... I'm not even winning trades, you know? So it's yeah, like it's that not awkward. like you can lethal stuff down. Things, right, so, so. I, I'm trying to, trying to find that optimal balance there, but it's really fun. I've been winning a lot more than I've been losing, so... Uh, oh, that's... Yeah, that's always a good thing. Yeah, yeah I, I think I think Ring of Imaginary in my OTK decks are actually pretty good. It's something that I've I've always found really interesting in tournaments to play against. Um, I I've did have played a little bit against the Sorcerer build on on ladder recently, but I think the Scout build is really good too, and it's a little bit less like pure combo reliant, which can be nice even more flexibility. But yeah. I don't know, we'll see. There's still, I mean, I think it's just a very underexplored archetype, so we'll see what happens with it. But yeah, I mean, I've I've looked at it in Spell Sword and Scout, and I really liked the Sorcerer mostly because of Crucible Blacksmith being able to get those pieces in faster. Mm -hmm. um, at least true. with the Bone Armor build. I mean, obviously, I think you can probably do some other, some other things without uh, Bone Armor, but it doesn't seem quite as efficient. Now, the bone armor is a thing that gives a bunch of bonus health um, based off of what you consume. And then the ring is the thing that, that it makes your attack the same as your health, correct? Yeah, and bumps yeah. too before doing it. So that, yeah, that's pretty nice. Yeah. Uh, especially because, like, now you have, like, Fallen Dragon and Dark. So, like, right now the build I have, and I'm trying to find that perfect amount. Obviously, Portcullis is great um, because of the Prophecy Guard. But then you also need, like, other things with these huge defenses to consume for the bone armor. Um, mm -hmm. So right now I've got like uh, the Dark Anchors and Fallen Dragons in there as just pure discard fodder with Discerning Thief and uh, Merchant's Camel. Mm -hmm. um, and trying to find like, okay, there's too many of these big beefy back end things and it's disrupting my hand versus I wish there was just one more card in the game that allowed you to discard things, you know, or at least in the colors that I, the, in Sorcerer. There's the 2-3 Pilfer that mills you for three. Yeah, yeah I, I, I looked at that one, and I, I tried playing it, and I think it's not bad until it starts throwing your bone armors in there, and that happened to me one too many times, so I couldn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess you, well, I guess you can actually. Because then you're like, oh, do I run, what's the thing that pulls an item back? Like, excavate? Like, I'm like, this is going too far down the rabbit hole here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess if you're playing scout, you can scout's report, right? That's another, like, draw, and you could. Uh -huh. you could also get a corner called Gambler. Oh yeah, yeah. Gambler, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's true. That gets rid of yeah, there's a couple more in that. Well, yeah. I know what have you been playing, man? What have you been playing in Legends saying you've been really sort of like uh enjoying it? Is that did you take like a, a trip down nostalgia lane with a deck that you used to love or something that's just rekindled the love for the game in you? Well, I mean, you know, as much um 
hate as there's been for the meta recently. I, I think I've just been feeling like there's a huge diversity of decks that are available to explore. Um, I'm feeling like we're in a place where the game is really poorly understood, and that's like a really exciting time whenever the game is probably understood. Um, I, I think that you know we're still there's still just some major meta shifting things, not even just about you know the invade combo decks, but even just like uh, the unbelievably powerful green one drops that got added recently. I think like really th- throw the whole meta game for a loop. Um, so I think there's yeah there's just tons of discovery to be done and there hasn't been there haven't really been any huge tournaments to incentivize people to like really put in work to figure it out so it feels like um, there's just a ton of unexplored territory yeah um, personally I've been this week I was working on uh, mid range veteran kind of in the style of mid tribunal um, mm-hmm. for a while which felt quite good and I was enjoying that I revisited guild sworn a bit. Um, which is fun as well. What else have I been working on? Been working on just like a big sea of mono one drop decks, Assassin, Battle Mage, Dagoth, etc. Mm. Um, and I've been just been playing some some Robo Crabs too, which is kind of you know all reliable. And I think we'll continue to see that archetype um, remain at the top tier of competitive play for a long time. Um, That's not my favorite thing in the world. I don't like crabs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, they, yeah, it's not. I think there's some arguments to be made there about how the play patterns are with those archetypes, but I, it's pretty undeniable how powerful they are right now. Yeah, I mean, they, they are strong. I just, I, I, I was so passionately against the card, Rusty Crab Shack. Uh, summon crabs from your deck. I, I refuse to say the correct name of it on this show. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, uh, yeah, rusty locker crab shack um, mm-hmm. card. I was so I was so passionately against it that like you feel like you stake yourself on the fact that I hate it. So now I can't I can't like it or try it. You know, that, that that's probably wrong of me, but I just don't. I, what do you, I don't what do you not like about it? I I was like so sure it was bad whenever I oh. first saw it, and then it wasn't bad. Yeah, <laughs> it's, 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 uh, right. it's like this little bit of bad. pride. Yeah, it's like this yeah. little bit of pride. I was like, this card sucks. Things for mud crabs suck. Mud crabs suck, and then I was wrong, and it was really good. And then, well, I, to be fair, you weren't wrong. Mud crabs do suck. It's just when well, you get what eight eight of stats for five. I mean, distributed. Sure. Is it sure. eight eight or is it? It it yeah. is eight eight, right? Uh, Add up. It's one two. It's five five plus one. E. Yeah, yeah. It's eight eight. Okay. But you also you also get a mud crab card, and you get a ping, and it's also a tutor oh, for reflective for reflective yeah, it's, automaton. It's also an orc. Mm-hmm. It's also a. Uh, well, yeah, exactly right. Right. Atronach. It's 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 an atronach to consume. Uh, it's a dragon if you're playing with Loon Lookout. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a lot of things. Yeah. Yes, yes, it is. It's also dumber, which is the most important of those. Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess that's true too. And it's a lot of Kellyless. Um, it's all. It's all the things. It's all the yeah. things. I mean, I think the biggest thing about that card really is is not so much the power level of the card itself, but it's that because it is strong enough to enable you to play all those cards that would otherwise be bad, you get to play this package. Uh, I mean, generally you play two enraged wood crabs with the, most of the lists that I've seen. Which means that you're adding uh, what is it, 14 colorless cards to your deck, and so that just suddenly makes runners insane. The fact that you actually have that density, like it makes um, 
the me- it makes mechanical allies super good suddenly and i mean that that's yeah, right. Yeah, I, 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 built, I I um had, I mean, a ridiculous amount of success. Like in the couple weeks after that, with a build that was um sorcerer. I play sorcerer a lot. I just kind of realized, but maybe that's my <laughs> favorite color combination. I don't know. Uh, but using uh, and I didn't even go full full Dwemer. I kind of just said okay. I'm going to put two Dwarven Dynamos. I put two uh, Hulking Fabricants in for more five-mana 8-8s. Eight uh, mm-hmm. And then I was had Alphiques at the top end and just kind of did played beefy good stuff. I didn't even have to play all the Dwemers, and it was ridiculous. I mean, it was... Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just... There's also... That's the other thing. And I guess I'll say this. Like, I don't hate the idea of it being around to allow you to play bad cards, you know? I mean, I like the <laughs> idea of, hey, no one will ever play the 2-1 Mud Crabs. Let's make a reason for them to play it. I don't hate that in general, but I don't even hate Salty's Assault that much because Ice Storm exists, I guess, until Divine Server uh-huh. comes down. But, um... Yeah, I just think that there's there's a certain level of like the ease of which you can play it, and that's kind of where I fall a lot when it comes to balancing things. I I tend to like things where like if you have X on board, then you play this and get this dope ass effect. Um, at least in other games, maybe Tesla just doesn't seem to have as many conditions upon playing cards as a lot of well, other games do. I mean, I think there is still a condition there because like for instance, you don't just like I, I don't think it's correct to just put old salty's assault and the mud crabs in like an aggro in in aggro crusader yeah right? yeah like um, you can you, you, you can play it you can there is a very solid build of robo crab that's crusader but like you don't just you don't just slot it into anything aggro right so there are right. definitely conditions on the cards sure. being good sure, the, the condition is that your deck is now full of mud crabs <laughs> well that's, yeah yeah that's, I, I'm, that's, I'm not, I'm not it's, talking so much about deck it's building not, it's, yeah it's not just that yeah right. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I just have a no. It's okay. I have a personal prejudice against. It's cool. Yeah, I have a personal prejudice against the against the mud crabs. Although I will say this: when I first heard about the card and I looked at it, I forgot I forgot that reflective automaton was a mud crab. And I oh, think yeah. if there was four mud crabs and reflective automaton was not in the game, that it would be like if there was another junk like one one or two one or one two mud crab, it would not be as strong. I bet well, that no, reflective automaton. You would you wouldn't play the other one in your deck. Well, what I'm saying is Reflective Automaton, you couldn't pull. Like, if you couldn't pull Reflective Automaton with it. Well, no. And you were yeah. pulling so it. So if it pulled mud. random, four random mud crabs, then there and there was a chance that you would miss it. But if you're deck building, you'll never put that fifth mud crab in because you're always going to want to make sure you get the automaton. Yeah, I, I'm 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 saying in the world where reflective automaton is not oh, doesn't exist. Yeah, okay. Doesn't exist. The right. card doesn't exist, right? I think reflective automaton really increases the power level of that card. Oh, because, no doubt. I mean that enables yeah, the power level of the card. <laughs> yeah, by a lot. Um, okay, so here's the thing. This episode we're going to be doing. Oh, what if I? I guess I didn't tell you what I've been playing. I honestly haven't had a ton of time to play um, and haven't had a, a tremendous amount of interest to play. I guess I just haven't found that deck that I really want to explore. Um, but I did play in the gauntlet this week and I played some like old school uh, Agro Crusader. Um, and uh, my first run, I ended up c- kind of conceding out my second two runs because I didn't really have the time to finish three runs really well this weekend because I had a really busy full weekend. Um, but I did go uh, nine and two on my first run with the Agro Crusader nice. and um, I, I really enjoyed it um, actually. And that was surprising to me. I didn't think that I would, but um, 
little aggro crusader sometimes is good for you. And other than that, I've been playing some some like old Mary, um, sort of like control with a good bit of drain and removal in it with some dragon top end. Um, it's not the best deck in the world, but it is a tremendous amount of fun to play. Um, I realized it's not as good now. It was um, it was a lot better um, whenever, uh, specifically whenever uh, like mid BM was a really big thing, and you had a lot more wards because I was running a lot of like minus one minus one cards, um, and it just countered that pretty well. And so you know, like wardcrafters stopped being a problem for me. In the current meta, you're not seeing quite as much of the mid BM, or at least I wasn't. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, a lot of my cards just weren't doing nearly as much uh, as what they were doing, you know, before uh, before this set came out, which is the last time I was playing. And I took it to Legend the last time, uh, right before the set came out. So, that now, was... Per- but I was messing around with it. It was fun. It's it's a fun deck to play, for sure. Can I ask a question here? Because I didn't get to yeah. play the, um, the Gauntlet, um, per mm-hmm. the usual, but extra, because even though it was the Doppelgangers, I don't think I've ever played that card once. I don't have much of an interest in it, um, so I wasn't pers- oh. I wasn't swayed by the by the extended art version or whatever. But my question is, uh, it was it, it was two ofs, right? You could only play yes. up to two copies. Now, could you play two legendaries? Uh, two uh, unique legendaries? Two... No. Ah, oh, okay. See, yeah. if that well, had been one the case, I would have been like, I would have been interested in playing two, like figuring out what leg- what unique legendaries would be really fun at two copies. <laughs> yeah. The the legendary that I played, which which actually turned out to be better than I thought, was Droth. I don't. That's probably not his name. He's the the new unique yellow legendary that whenever he, he, he like targets oh, one of your minions Zop, and whenever Zop that minion or... takes damage, he yeah, takes Zop. it instead. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, I was really surprised at how good that card is. Um, uh, you hit like uh, I like I try to hit it on like fifth legion trainer. Um, there was like some games where like I was I was like losing a lane and I got a hive defender in their lane and then hit it hit it with that and like that hive defender went to like 15 health um, which was like just won me the game in the race um, which was cool uh, and there was times when I just like needed to protect a high damage minion with low health and I would throw that on him and th- that minion could like trade a whole bunch of times as they were trying to kill it and also same time be hitting face. Um, I was really impressed with that card. I thought it was pretty what, cool. What is the cost of that card? Five? Five. 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 And what's yeah. the stats on it? It's a 3-9. Three, 3-9. Nine. Three, nine, nine. Nine. How does it read when, like, everything takes an instance of damage? So, for instance, does that protect your board from Ice Storm? It protects your one creature. So you target a creature. Yeah. Like, so oh, basically what happened is it, is it would take six damage because mm-hmm. the, it would it would redirect three from the other creature and then also take three itself. Yeah. Okay, but it doesn't protect like one creature at a time. You pick a creature and like it's the little chained effect. Yes. Yeah, it's a summon effect. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, gonna... say, if you could slam that, it would take all the damage for all your creatures from Ice Storm. That would be nuts. <laughs> yes, it would be very. I locked. I lost an ice storm despite having that card. So yes, <laughs> yeah. it would would it be better? Yeah. Um, okay. So this episode, we were going to do something a little bit different. In the past couple, we've sort of gone through the news and the gauntlet and uh, guest Q and A and deck tech, uh, all sorts of things. Um, even doing some like my closing thoughts by me at the end. We're not going to do any of that this episode. Instead, on our Discord, we've had some people sort of like. Um, getting into the game, newer players, um, and also I think some folks who'd like to kind of get into a tournament scene a little bit, like wouldn't mind entering into Warp Meta, um, you know, trying to do some of these open tournaments. So we thought it'd be great to get Endo on and pick his brain a little bit about, like, how do you prep for tournaments? How do you deck build? Like, for folks, especially some folks who are going to be getting away from, 
using, you know, like the prefab decks or the pre-created decks that they've been buying with gold and they're trying to build their own decks now. So we have just a handful of questions that we're going to go through for this episode with Endo. Um, and I'm sure DBN and I will have uh, plenty to chime in with as well, um, where we're just going to be discussing, you know, some general thoughts on on tournament prep, lineup prep and deck building. Um, but, uh, that, yeah, that's what, that's what this whole episode is going to be about. So we came up with a couple of questions and, uh, DBN, which I'm very thankful for, reordered them for me. Um, and so the first one, uh, I won't actually have any input on cause I, I've never played in a tournament, but in DBN, you've played in a few. Yeah. I've played in tournaments. Yeah, you played in some tournaments. Um, and then, I mean, you play other card games, tournaments quite a bit. So yeah. the first question is this, what is it? Oh, well, this, yeah. What does it look like behind the scenes when you are preparing for a tournament? Things like how many decks do you test? How many times do you test a specific deck? And who do you practice with? Well, uh, yeah, Endo, go ahead. Why don't you, you want to give us a little, little, yeah, yeah. Give us a little insight. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, that's a super, super broad question. Um, It's going to, that's going to depend a bit on what kind of tournament you're testing for. Um, and who you are. Um, I'm fortunate enough that I'm part of a competitive team. Um, so when I test, it's with my teammates. Um, the primary TRS uh, tournament team roster for my Elder Souls Legends right now is uh, me, Immortal August, Maddie Borch, Super Thanks. Uh, am I missing someone? I don't think, think that's the primary roster right now. Um, I feel like an ass if I'm missing someone. I don't think I am, though. Um, so those are the people that I test with. Um, but you know, people absolutely can just prepare with, you know, one other person. Um, and many people, you know, don't have testing partners. Um, uh, and then, sorry. So what were the first parts of that question? Okay. So yeah, I'll, I'll just re restate it. What does it look yeah. like behind the scenes when you're preparing for a tournament mm -hmm. and, uh, like how many decks do you test? How many times do you test the deck? That sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. So I went, I did the, who I tested with. Yeah. Um, and then, so how many decks do you test and, you know, how many times do you test a deck? Um, so, you know, I try to familiarize myself with the vast majority of the viable decks in the game. Uh, you can't play literally everything, but I mean, you know, my computer desktop is just a giant grid of screenshots and deck lists um, for forever that I, you know, need to organize or just bin eventually. Um, and, you know, I think in a lot of ways, tournament preparation is a little bit, it's kind of like a continuous thing because as much as you do, might, you know, spend a lot of time particularly preparing for a single tournament uh, once, you know, there's money on the line or that kind of thing, you know, um, Preparing for an event is an extension of just the work you're doing to understand the game as a whole. Mm, okay. um, so, you know, when when time is a lim I mean, time is always a limiting factor to some extent, right? So, you know, how many times you're, you're gonna try to iterate a deck um, is something that's you know really more more dependent on just how much time you have at your disposal or anything else. So it's about you know how much time you think you can you can afford to spend. Um, because more time is always better, but you don't have infinite time. Um, so for for me, you know, I think that there's a pretty good eyeball test that you can that you can do um, 
just jamming out a handful of games with the deck against some of the key meta players. And you're not really you're not really looking at like the win loss. You're looking at you know how the deck felt and how it played out. And you're trying um, basically whenever you're testing a deck as a player, what you're trying to do is use your intuition and your experience as a player to estimate what a deck's win rate is in different matchups. You're not like you're never looking to just like you're 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 never just playing out a ton of games and then being like, well, we, we think that this this win rate is a rough estimate of what the deck's win rate should be in this matchup. You're always you know you're you're never getting to that level of sample size. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's always a it's always a um, a practice in in using your ability as a player to perceive. Uh, yeah, to, to estimate win so rates like, and that kind of thing. So, like, being able to look at why you lost and if that is an aberration or not, or why you won and if that's an aberration or not. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that's a lot of what um, the skill is that's really important in being able to learn quickly is pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, because... And, and this relates to both, you know, how you play, but is also deck building is, you know, you, when you start to, that's, that's probably the most important skill to have and to practice when it, when it comes to CCG play in general is pattern recognition. Um, mm. And um, so things like uh, things like when I played this two drop, it seems like um, like from this point forward against this deck that this two drop made a, a bigger impact than this this other two drop did against this deck and so like this is a something is that the type of pattern you're looking for like this line of play this particular yeah. card at this time did this thing and it it seems to have consistently gotten me ahead or consistently puts me behind right and i mean in some of it's but a lot of it's anticipatory right because a lot of what you're recognizing as a pattern is i mean it, you know is is not just that you're um I mean, and this is a this is a more advanced, high level type of thing. But you know what what the top players are doing is you're not just seeing something happen and then recognizing, ah, I see it happening. It's you can look at the contents of a deck and you can uh, see how it plays out on average. Mm-hmm. Um, and by doing that, you can start to you know, and you can start to anticipate like what typical play patterns are. And that can give you a lot. Like I, like, you know, I can know a lot about a deck, you know, more than the great majority of people to play the game with zero games on, on zero games playing the deck, because, you know, I can look at how the, how it's turns play out on average without playing the deck. So, yeah. Alex, I'm going to, and that comes from experience from playing similar decks similar you know archetypes playing the cards in other situations right. i mean that that's right. not that's i mean what you're talking about is the idea of being able to read a list more than anything else right right but you know i think deck building and um play are deeply linked so like you know i i don't think that you need to be a world-class deck builder to be a world-class player but i think that anyone who's a world-class player is at least an expert deck builder mm-hmm. right Anyone who's a world-class deck builder is at least an expert player, right? Yeah. Um, they, you know, you don't have to, like, it's not that the two are like, uh, you know, equal. It's not. It's not that like you know one is directly uh, equivalent to the other. Um, 
but there's they are linked deeply enough and contingent on each other enough that in order to play at a super high level, you need to like that to to understand how how a deck plays uh, at a tactical level um, and have being able to anticipate how you will play future turns and that kind of thing requires is the same sort of skill set that's necessary in building decks. Um, you know, the arithmetic of like moment to moment trade optimization and that kind of thing is, isn't something you need to be a deck builder to be able to do, but to, to play at a tactically advanced level, you need to know how to build decks. Yeah. Cause they're the same thing in a lot of ways. And, and is there, um, like just, I mean, I know that, uh, you don't, you probably don't want to give like an exact number, but is there like a, I know that before I feel comfortable with a deck or with a matchup, like even if I know just in in my brain like this deck should beat this deck this deck should be dominant over this one, is there still like okay I, I know that I want to play at least twenty games, or is like I know that I want to play at least seeing a, a specific matchup. Yeah, well, a specific matchup, a specific deck. Like let's say mid BM came out and um, Alfik was really strong. A, a pretty it was pretty easy pretty early on to see what a pretty strong deck was going to be. And, um, and and you could even kind of get an idea about those matchups pretty quickly, I think. I think there's been other decks where that's been harder to do. Um, but it was it was there like a point where – was there like a, a number that you know that like, okay, even if I feel really confident about this and I feel really confident that this is a good matchup or a bad matchup, um, I still want to make sure that I'm putting in you know at least 15 or 20 or 40 or however many games testing it out? Yeah, I mean as far as I – mean, I, so again, what I'll say is that it's all, you know, more time is better, but you, there's diminishing returns, right? So the, the, the first five games you play are, you know, much more important or, and much more mean, generally are going to have a, you know, much bigger impact in your understanding than your 46th, 47th, 48th, 49th, and 50th game, right? Mm -hmm. Of the matchup. Um, I'd say that, you know, for me, there are so many decks in the game and so many matchups that, yeah, you know, when I, when I do go and like grind a matchup with the team, with the teammate, if, if I'm like, uh, so for instance, like one thing we'll, we'll do if we're like in the top eight the next day and we know our quarterfinal matchup, then we might want to just jam out games of, of matchups. And yeah, we, usually it is like something like five games per matchup type thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, just and that's, you know, and I, I don't, and I think, you know, frequently when, again, I think one thing is this really, that's really important to, to emphasize here is that um, no matter what sample size you have, it's never going to be representative. So, mm -hmm. like, I, I think, and I think that theoretical understanding is always going to outweigh just raw sample size. Um, so I think, like, a basic example of this is, um, when uh, Abomination Empire came out uh, this past summer during Masters qualifiers, uh, there were a lot of players, like top, like you know, top players, posting on Twitter about like how they were grinding out tons of games, trying to like get an estimation of of you know how frequently the deck would would get to go off by X term, that kind of thing. And that was the kind of thing that you could literally just do by doing math. Like you know, like you could back at the envelope that well enough that you didn't need to grind the games. So I think um, where you can, you should be looking to minimize the amount of games that you need to be, that you need to be playing as much as possible. Mm. Um, you know, you, like 
it is important to play the game in order to be successful in tournaments because the, the muscle memory you build up is super important. Um, but more than anything else, the theoretical understanding you build up as a CCG player, as well as as a Tesla player, and even just as a player of games in general, tactically, from all, all the games you might play, all that's way more important than the micro of grinding a matchup. Mm -hmm. Uh, DBN, I mean, you uh, you have done you you've done some tournament play for Tessel. You do pretty consistent tournament play for um, Legend of the Five Rings. There's been other card games that you've been a pretty consistent tournament player. So, what does tournament prep look like for you? Um, I'll I'll start by saying like I've never done a lot of tournament prep for Tessel. So the tournaments that I've competed in, I've actually done, I haven't been in a whole lot of tournaments, but the ones I've been in, I've actually done probably, I've probably overperformed to be completely frank. Like I, I consider myself a pretty good player, um, but I, I'm, and, and actually, uh, you know, Endo and I have, have done stuff on this is I'm a pretty instinctive player and I just kind mm -hmm. of go with my gut a lot and I don't always break down like the theoretical lines, uh, at least not for Tessel. And that's something that like, you know, I mean, First tournament I played in was the TRS uh, preseason qualifier. Pre yeah, preseason qualifier. Um, and I had been streaming for a month and a half, two months, and I didn't have a full collection. I took uh, Token Crusader. I took Aggro Warrior without Headhunters because I didn't have them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I took uh, Aggro Sorcerer. Um and I won mostly on the back of Token Seder because I was super, 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 super comfortable with that deck. Um, mm, okay. And I kind of – and I beat a bunch of good players. I beat um, – I think I beat I Like Pasta, who had been in the previous Master Series. He was yeah, still playing at the time. Player. Yeah. Uh, I beat uh, uh, Bijardi, who was in the game mm -hmm. for a while. Um, so I, I, play, I had actually a pretty tough bracket. Um, and then I played Indo. And I got completely <laughs> annihilated, uh, and it came from a complete lack of knowledge. I mean, uh, it was a complete lack of knowledge, and the reason why is I didn't really know the meta. I just knew my decks really freaking well, right? Okay, sure. And I got annihilated because I didn't understand the raw power of mid-BM and how it interacted with my lineup. Um, so I think, like, there's this idea in preparation that, like, you know, I'll be really, really comfortable with your decks. And I would kind of push back on that. I mean, I, I do think I won a lot because I played so many games of Token Crusader and I was really good at knowing all the lines for me. But I think there's a lot to be said where as you reach a certain point, you need to know what all the other decks can do. So at, even if yeah. you're not planning to play them, you need to know their capabilities. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that brings up a good point with, with our follow, our next question. Um, and our next question is going to be, um, Ender, direct at you. When you build a deck to counter the meta, what are you looking for or what are you thinking about? You know, because I think there's the play, take the strongest decks, play the strongest decks. There's there's that mindset when you go into the tournament, right? And then I think there's also a mindset that says, don't take the strongest decks. Take the decks that beat the strongest decks. Counter what other people are going to be playing. And you can get into mind games. So you, you bring the decks that beat the decks that beat the strongest decks type of thing. Um, but what do you think, like, when you're trying to counter what the prevalent meta is, kind of what, what's going through your head for that? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the first, I mean, the biggest thing, right, is you're looking for um, what the patterns are and what people play. And 
um, based on that, you can try to um, decide on, you can try to figure out if there's any vulnerabilities in the meta. Um, another thing that's really important is that the exact strategy you take can de change a lot depending on um, exactly what you're trying to achieve in the tournament. Um, so for instance, like the, the metagame uh, in the early rounds of a tournament uh, tends to be very different than the metagame at the late, during the late rounds. Um, so you make it deep in the bracket and you're playing at stronger players. Uh, the metagame among the, like, the strongest players is different than the metagame amongst like all players at large. Um, so for instance, like, this is like something that uh, TRS has had some success in at the previous Masters is frequently we end up with people who are kind of at the top of the points leaderboard, even if we aren't winning, like actually like, you know, getting first in the qualifiers, we still end up with like lots of points because we consistently make deep bracket by attacking uh, the meta in a way that lets us consistently beat uh, the, the lesser players, even if we aren't setting ourselves up for maximum probability success against like the highest level or like the deep bracket. Um, so understanding the metagame is different and what you're, you know, what you're trying to attack is really important. Um, I think the, the biggest kind of, uh, axie, there's like many different axes that we look at with deck archetypes, which help you understand what a metagame is like. Um, I think the most important ones are, well, I mean, I guess there's just like raw, there's like raw speeds, like fast versus slow. Um, but I think beyond that, there's, um, there's like, you know, highly tempo efficient decks versus highly value efficient decks mm -hmm. um, and the sacrifice that you make in each direction. And so frequently um, you can build decks that exploit people who push far, farther in one direction or the other. So an example of that was um, this past summer at Masters, um, there were a number of very powerful decks that um, were incredibly value efficient um, and their raw power level was high enough that um, their tempo efficiency was 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 still strong, and they could still keep keep up. So, you know, the, the level one of the format were these. I mean, basically, basically the level one of the format was like, uh, you know, like mid range slash control tribunal, control Ebonheart, um, even like control Empire the first week, that that kind of stuff. Um, and so, what we ended up seeing is that over the course of the tournaments, people got great. You know, started making these kind of greedier and greedier lists, so more value efficient and, and less tempo efficient. Um, because, you know, that, um, that those were kind of the core best decks, and in order to compete with those decks, they needed to be, you know, fighting fire with fire, but just, you know, even more extreme, right? Um, so we could see that over time, the meta was getting greedier and greedier, and so that's why you saw that after the first week, what um, a lot of TRS ended up doing is just undercutting and playing um, like quad hyper, hyper aggro. Um, and we had a lot of success with that and put up like, you know, a number of top 16s and top 8s like repeatedly or you know, basically every week. We had, you know, I had three top 16s slash top 8 in a row. I think I, um, in August, did I think very similarly, um, positive well. I mean, yeah, so we, I mean, super went and won one. So, um, you know, that was kind of the vulnerability we identified there was that people were playing these, you know, super greedy builds of decks. People were playing Control Evan Hurt with no debilitate, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's like, you know, frequently that's the axis that you can most look at. So it goes the other direction too, where there are times where 
Um, the meta gets, you know, more and more about when like aggro decks are the level one, people get, get, you know, start building these aggro decks that are better and better in the aggro mirror. Um, that are, you know, faster and faster, um, but they gas out easily. And so then what you can do is you can start playing control decks that are, you know, um, really not greedy at all. Um, but, uh, like just really consistently defensive, really high guard density decks that, you know, aren't, aren't playing lots of top end and, uh, you know, that you just let the aggro decks lose to themselves when they run out of cards. So, you know, there's, there's ways you can, you can attack metas and like, when they push in either direction, I think that like, um, you know, greed versus tempo is probably like the most common area where we see metas get attacked. Um, like i'm rambling a lot but <laughs> no no i think that i think that's helpful yeah. stuff for sure well, i think yeah. like sort of to to kind of sum it in like a very not super uh exact way you're talking kind of about not looking at what is strong but why it's strong uh and like why it's being played and the way in which it's executing its strategies and and looking at that is going to help inform you as to not what to play but how to play it yeah, for sure. Because um, a lot of what we're doing when we're attacking a meta is is we're tuning decks, right? Um, and and um, in 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 a direction, um, and, and that can also, I mean, in you know, new decks and new types of decks can can almost be uh, a way of tuning a deck in a direction, right? Um, so you know. Uh, like I'm trying to give a good example. Like, like if you if you're saying, you know, I'm playing this Falu deck and I want it to be better at board control and you know have a higher guard density, um, but still be doing generally Falu things, then that you might tune your Falu deck by switching it out for an Aggro Empire deck, right? Mm -hmm. um, because that's like a variation on the same strategy. That's a, that's you know pushed in that direction where it's better at controlling in the Aggro mirror. Right. Um, so yeah, oh, that, a lot of, that's, that's interesting because in that scenario, right, you're, you're <laughs> switching classes might not what be what most people would consider tuning, right? That's like, we well, are playing an entirely different class. You're not even playing Halalu anymore. But what you're saying is like, okay, Halalu, not as a class, but as a theory, this is its goal. This is its game plan. This is what it's going to attempt to do. I want to tune it. In order to tune it, I'm switching classes, but I, my, I'm I'm having a similar goal. I'm just I'm moving more into what what this particular class is just a little bit more efficient at than what Halalu is efficient at. So I'm dropping the red. I'm picking up the purple because I now know that I can run things like, like uh, Emperor's Blade, Skin sure. Hound. Yeah. Yeah, so now I'm I'm capable of, of running some of these cards. My game plan remains similar, but in in this meta, I'm sort of tuning to they're going to play a little bit more aggressive. I need to be able to sort of win that race or shore up my defenses occasionally um, against these decks. That, that's just very interesting to me because I think when most people think of like tweaking or tuning, they're like aggro empire, aggro halalu, aggro dagoth. They're all the same. It just doesn't matter which one I play. But what you're saying, no, like there's these nuances from one to the next that do something a little bit better. And when it comes to like fine tuning your deck, you may actually be switching the entire class to have the same game plan, but to do it in a slightly different manner. I think that's very interesting because I've never really even considered that. 
Yes. I mean, I think when we talk about a lot of uh, high level tournament preparation, you know, a lot of what we're looking at is, okay, like we do have all these different decks and at a certain, you know, and to a certain point you have to try to make the distinction of, okay, like we have one slot left in the lineup and, you know, we think that the the deck is either going to be Agro Dagoth or Agro Dominion and which one's it going to be? And so then you have to start, you know, analyzing like what are those fine tuned distinctions and what, you know, what, minute in in what minute ways is one deck better in certain matchups than the other and that kind of thing um so uh, basically the higher level you get with within the game the more that it will abstract itself um and you know the more that you'll be able to just translate directly between um some of the micro of like individual card choices and the macro of like why you're doing that and mm-hmm. um, tactically, what the purpose is, kind of mm. thing. Interesting. You know, my my whole brain, like when I think about how am I going to counter the meta, I'm like, you're playing a lot of Wardcrafter right now. I'm going to put Curse and Murkwater Witch in my deck. <laughs> so it's like the only mm-hmm. thing my brain goes to countering specific cards that I'm seeing a lot of, and that's about it. Uh, and what you're talking about is on um, it, it it's. It is that, right? It is that, but it, it it is on a deeper it's on a deeper level as as well. You know, it's, it's on not a just tactical like, level rather than rather than like a one to one. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, and I think um, I think that I think that's really really interesting. Uh, DBN, I don't know if you have anything insight to add that you'd like to add in terms of like if you're building a deck that you want to counter the meta. It seems you know I don't know I don't know how you play off stream, but it seems like on stream. You kind of. This is the deck that I want to play. This is what sounds fun to me, and this is what I'm going to build. Um, oh yeah. Well, so like ladder is not really. I I I'm so. Endo touched on it actually right at the beginning, which was the, like right now. There's tons of semi viable decks, at least in the so realm many. Of, you know, at least at at least at ladder, and I honestly probably in tournament play to a certain degree too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, right now I don't bother countering anything because i don't know what i'm gonna play against you know so i'm just my i mean this kind of actually for better or for worse this kind of harkens back to my philosophy about competitive decks uh in general and and again i mean you have to understand too like i started uh my career as a ccg player with Yu-Gi-Oh, followed by versus system followed by old legend of the five rings and now legend of the five rings the current iteration in each of those games the ones i've taken seriously in each of those games i've played at a pretty high level um are mono deck games you you bring one deck you know Mm. uh you and and so tesla is this whole other and quite frankly you know fascinating element of lineup construction which completely shifts the way you think about handling matchups and handling good and bad matchups, handling the meta, trying, you know, like, I mean, we could, this is a whole nother topic. And I think we're going to touch on this in a bit, you know, get Endo's input on this, at least in literally in leading into sense. our next question. I'm literally trying, right? Our, yeah, it is uh, a really it, good job. You did a th- great thank job you, at it. Right. And we're just making it totally, you know, transparent now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, you know, and so I, but I think that like, for me, I've always been on the case of make your deck as good against as many things as possible, as well-rounded in terms of, you know, being able to handle anything. I like decks that are versatile and can handle a lot of different 
archetypes, a lot of different other, you know, opponents. Um, and I, so I tend to build my decks that way for ladder, right? And of course, as we look at what you do for tournaments, considering you're bringing between three and four decks, that completely shifts. I mean, you know, you'll ask any caster or tournament player and they'll tell you tournament decks and ladder decks are quite different because you have a more direct idea of what your purpose of each list is for. You don't necessarily, you know, say, I want this to beat everything. You say, I'm targeting X. And that's exactly what Endo was talking about with making those tech adjustments is you're targeting certain things and you may not target the same thing with two decks in your lineup or heck, you may target it with all three, you know, but that's something that you start considering. And so like, yeah, when I test... Um, and when I want to take down the meta for L5R, which is actually a really relevant comparison right now, which is that I play a certain clan, and I mean, partly there's a clan loyalty thing worked into it, which I like from a flavor perspective, but my faction is good, and I'm really good with my faction. I play that faction because it fits my play style, which mm. is a whole nother thing right that i mean i think my strengths often come with being very familiar with the deck and having it kind of match the way i want to play but when you look at a at an enemy faction and that faction or in this case maybe that that deck that ebonheart rage ebonheart pre-nerf right and you look at that thing and that there's that beast you have to tame and you're like (laughs) what do i do with this you start taking your your deck and you're saying okay is this 10 percent like again it you don't run the numbers but this i perceive 10 percent increase in my chance against this deck worth forfeiting you know uh the higher percentage chance to get things i might see more often that's those are the kind of the that intuition of what is how far do you take a tech right before it starts damaging your odds against a wider field and that's just mm-hmm. kind of an open question that like i always try to ask myself when i'm working on teching Mm, interesting. Yeah, so, and in general, yeah. it's just quickly, um, you know, that, that kind of thing about, you know, how far to take attack, how much to polarize the deck's matchups, that's also, you know, largely based on what you're trying to do. You have to remember that basically polarizing a deck's matchup um, in an, a lot of environments basically serves as a variance ramp, um, meaning that... Um, you're reducing the amount that your uh, play skill uh, will determine match results and uh, because it's increasingly dependent on what the matchup is, right? If you build a deck in such a way that it has an 80-20 matchup in one matchup and a 20-80 in another, then you know, you're you're leaving a lot more up to chance. You might as well uh, because, be flipping the coin. <laughs> right. Um, and so that's and that's the kind of thing that, um, you know, can be correct in certain, certain environments. So like an example of that is um, when you are in like a really small tournament that's like a lot of really high-level players, so like the Master Series, for example, when, you know, not the qualifiers, but the actual event, um, you know, depending on exactly what your bracket looks like, you might say, you know, I think that my play skill is similar, maybe a little better, maybe a little worse than everyone else I'm going to play against. And that, if I don't think that my play skill is, that I should be leaning on my play skill to carry me, then maybe it's okay for me to, turn, to turn my game results into coin flips. Maybe, maybe that is like a, you know, a, a good way to win. So, well, and as bad um, as it sounds, like it, it's, it's, I mean, as bad as that sounds, like, oh, he's just making it coin flips. I mean, listen, if it's helping you win, you know, I mean, yeah, well, it's, certain... it's, 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 
we're talking about really high level tournament play. It's, right. it's all a numbers game, right? Yeah. And if if you determine, like you could, like if you can honestly say to yourself, you know what, I think I am a less skilled player than the average <laughs> person in this tournament, then it is better for you to flip coins to determine match outcomes than it is for you to, you know, use what you perceive to be a lesser play skill. Um, we saw that kind of uh, in the first couple master series uh qualifiers with the you know predominance of, of burn assassin for a while uh, we saw some uh, a few lesser known players players who had been out of the game for a while start making it further and deeper into the tournament because of a reliance on on uh burn assassin were they actually and, playing it though hmm? yeah were they actually playing it really okay. yeah mm-hmm um, yeah. And well, and we also saw like a couple players start bringing assassin and archer, trying to do similar things, and basically turn it into, do I get my combo off? You know, right. and and like I think that I mean that's something to always be aware of. I mean that, and I think like it actually kind of in a weird way like was warping the way the final brackets were coming out and kind of ending up in these situations where like. These players were bringing in their burn assassin, which, you know, some of the maybe the lesser skilled players that they played against who didn't quite know the potency of burn assassin at the time weren't weren't banning, you know, or maybe yeah, they well, were no bringing... one should have been banning that deck. The deck was very bad. Right. But, uh, but it was, it was turning not certain, good. It was turning but... these certain matchups into these like, yeah. I mean, you were talking about these polarized, extreme coin yeah. flippy situations. Does my opponent bring something that can't deal with burn assassin? OK, great. You know, yeah, there's a free win. Super greed control and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, I mean, just for a, a an example of that, I mean, that's what that's what we're talking about, you know? Yeah. Or I mean, yeah. or, or, or as an example of a deck that was actually like a good deck, though. Like, um, yeah. again, with with, <laughs> with with Empire with Empire Bomb, like, oh, that was right. a deck where, where basically what it was was um, that you what you were turning it into was you basically it was something like you're you know the back of the envelope calculation we did was you're basically doing like it was like a 65 percent coin flip or something <laughs> so you're like you know and against people who are a very similar skill to you well that yes you absolutely would love to flip 65 percent coins all day long right like 65 percent heads <laughs> coins like that that sounds great mm-hmm. but you know if you think that you know against the broader population you can get a much better win rate than that then you don't want to play that against right. them. So that, that's the kind of calculus you have to do. And yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Not, so no, uh, good. Go ahead. No, I just uh, think you're totally right. Like we saw a couple examples of players that like all made it into like the top eight, you know, uh, and the ones, some of them had made it there without empire in the list. I think I, I want to say flow there. That was a great example in this one, uh, one of the qualifiers, like Flo made it with like a bunch of mid rangey things, which is his his shtick, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and then cues up against somebody who was playing uh, Empire, and it just was like Empire win, Empire win, Empire win, you know. <laughs> and and I talked to Flo afterwards. He's like, you know, he said exactly what you said. He said, you know, I liked my skill mattering more against the wider field, you know, playing mid range. I think I had a better chance you know, playing those mid-range. And then he's like, but I'll tell you what, man, you go up against that empire and you just never know how it's going to flip. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and, that, and that's exactly the kind of strategy we were talking about how, you know, a lot of times I'll say for me as a player, like I tend to lean in that way where I, you know, I'm someone who I build lineups frequently in a way where I frequently make deep bracket, but very rarely actually win tournaments. Mm. And a lot of that's because of that, because I lean into decks that, you know, can give me high percentage against people that I 
cannot play or, and or that I can, you know, have an advantage coming in from just like a lineup perspective, that kind of thing. Um, but I, you know, I'm, I might not generate high variance situations that can be, you know, and I don't go for like, is like raw power, high rolly things that can be really good and like deep bracket sometimes. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that, that leads us to our next question, which I think is an interesting, we, we've been sort of, you know, dancing around it a little bit, but how do you go about building a lineup? We now know a little bit of some of your mindset when it comes to prepping for a tournament, when it comes to tweaking a specific deck to fit into or to counter the meta, but now you have to come up with three or four decks and put them together. Um, what does that What does that look like? And I'm, I'm sure that hinges at least a little bit on the format of the particular tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, so I understand like there's certain ways that you would build a lineup for one one format over the other. Just curious, like how do you go about now? Now I got to put this format together. I got to put these decks together, this lineup together. How do how do you go about doing that? Yeah, so it does change substantially depending on whether you're playing in Conquest or Last Hero Standing, like you're alluding to. Uh, for people who don't know, uh, Last Hero Standing is um, you keep playing with a deck until you lose with it, and once you lose with it, you go. You have to switch to one of your other decks. Whereas Conquest is um, you play a deck until you win with it. And once you win with your deck, then you move on to your next one. So in order to win a match of Conquest, you have to win a game with each of your decks uh, that is left unbanned. Whereas to win a, a match of last year's standing, you could just play one deck if you can 3-0 with or 2-0 depending on the tournament um, with that deck. Um, these days, we mostly see Tesla... Um, uh, use last hero standing, which again is the format where you keep playing with a deck until you lose. Um, and I do personally prefer that format um, largely because uh, I think it actually provides opportunities for a lot more creativity in the types of decks you include in your lineups. And the reason for that is because in Conquest, because you must get a win on every deck, um, frequently it is extremely risky to bring some decks that might have really polarized matchups because. Um, if you get stuck on a deck and that just doesn't match up well into the opponent you're playing against, uh, you know, you could get screwed. Um, so if I bring a deck that's like, uh, you know, like a super strong anti-aggro deck, but really bad against control decks, and then I you know, run into someone who's playing whose lineup is just four control decks, well, I might just not be able to get a win on that one deck and be screwed, right? Um, mm-hmm. This is some more kind of like specialized deck, decks like that don't, you know, don't get to exist as much in Conquest. Um, whereas they do in last year's standing. Um, so the biggest thing, I guess, with, so with lineup preparation for last year's standing, which is the primary format for Tesla tournaments. Um, so I think like DBN is saying, I think my biggest piece of advice is that you want to just have like, you know, general strength. Um, you know, you can decide, you know, decide to ramp variance and, and polarize your lineup in a certain way where you say, you know, what, I'm just going to hope I run into certain archetypes. Um, but for, you know, more advanced players, like what I, and in broader tournaments where you just get a wide range of people playing, um, and I think really for learning the game and developing yourself as a player, what I tend to recommend is playing decks that have a a broader matchup spread, um, have more game into a variety of archetypes. And you frequently want to make sure that you can have some, you know, some slight differences in decks, depending on the situation you run, run in. Uh, run into so for instance in last year's standing one thing that comes up a lot is because when you lose the deck your opponent will continue playing their deck and then you'll go to another deck um frequently it will make sense to tech your decks uh in a way where they're particularly strong in certain in certain matchups 
Um, because one, you can get away with that because if you lose, if you lose with your deck, it's okay, it's gone. So if you if you do tech your deck in a in a way, that's fine. You know, you lose you lose with it. Um, uh, but you can bring in a deck that's better in the matchup, right? Um, so compared to Conquest, you can afford to polarize your decks a little bit more in last year's standing. Um, but you don't want to go too far with that. And the main reason um, is because of the way that the band system works. Um, so if we talk about um, best of five last year's, last year's standing events, um, so you bring four decks. Um, and the, it's the easy way to think about it, right? So like just some some archetypal types of lineups. You could bring like a four aggro lineup, you could bring a four control lineup, or you could bring like a two aggro, two control lineup, that kind of thing. So let's say you bring like um, two decks that are good against aggro decks and two decks that are good against control decks. Um, okay, sure. If you queue, if you run into someone who's playing four control decks, right? What they can do is they're they can ban out one of your decks that's good against control decks. Um, and what you'll be left with is you'll end up being left with two decks that are against aggro decks and one deck that's against control decks. So after the ban phase, you know, you'll have one favored matchup and two unfavored matchups. Sure. Which is generally to be avoided, right? Yeah. Um, so even though you can get away with polar with polarization more, um, and having you know silver bullet counter decks and that kind of thing, um, in last year's standing, because of the ban phase, um, you know. Trying to to really split your de- your lineup down the middle and have like you know hard counters to things doesn't always work super well because if you assume that your opponent is going to ban responsibly and ban what they should be banning, um, which generally is uh, this is a side point, but I, I think one of my biggest tips for getting better at the game, um, while it's not always optimal for like maximizing your your ladder win rate and that kind of thing, as far as actually maximizing the amount that you're learning, it's all it, it's almost always best to just play and think as if your opponent is going to make good decisions. Um, so when you're building a lineup, you should you should build build you should build your lineup assuming that your opponent will ban the deck that they should ban theoretically, right? Mm-hmm. That, that is that is correct for them to ban. Um, you don't want you don't want to rely on your opponent making mistakes unless it's like you're in some weird situation where it's like you're going into a tournament and you know the person you're playing in round one and you know they have a tendency to ban some certain deck even though you don't think they should, that kind of thing. Like generally um you should be playing and building lineups assuming people are going to make the right decision um so but what that little exercise about like you know the bringing two anti-aggro decks and two anti-control decks thing is supposed to illustrate is that frequently um polarizing your lineup a lot around um you know having counter decks in certain situations can be quite risky because you'll what you'll end up with is you frequently end up leaning on like one deck in a match um and you know, there's a chance that one deck can carry you, but if that one deck slips at any point, like you might be kind of screwed. Um, so having generalist answers to things is important, um, but for sure you want to make sure that like uh, if you're you want to as you're building your lineup, you want to want to identify like what um, weaknesses of the lineup can be, um, and that can inform things you do in, in a number of ways. So one of the most important things to think about with the lineup is you want to think about um what you plan on banning uh okay, with with, sure. with your lineup so like one thing that i'm i've known for historically is i've built a lot of lineups for tournaments that are uh, designed and uh with the assumption that you ban tribunal if you play against it um okay uh because i've built a lot of lineups that look to take advantage of um of those 
you know more like greedy play styles um and to uh take advantage of people not having enough tempo efficiency um so identifying what you plan on banning is one of the most important things you can do um when you're when you're designing a lineup because it you can you know when when you've when you've decided what you plan on banning um then that changes a lot what matchups you're planning on playing right um, sure. That that means in some ways, like I don't have to build the rest of my lineup around this, around this. Like I don't have to consider tribunal in this scenario because I'm not going to play against it. Because if I come up against it, I'm always going to ban it. Right. Exactly. Um, and so that that can, that's one way that you know tournaments can be very different than ladder is that you know there might be some deck that's like really popular and really good, and you might not want to play a certain deck on ladder because it doesn't have a good matchup into that deck, but in a tournament format where you can say ban that deck, you can build your lineup accordingly and say, okay, well, well now what does the metagame look like when I take that one deck out of the picture, and how, how can that how can that shape the rest of my decks? Um, yeah, yeah changes that's it very, a lot. That's very interesting. Yeah, and hard to do if you don't have a team of people to practice with, for sure. For sure. Yeah. No. Um, because there just isn't a ton of information out there on the game, and there are so many decks that you can play. And that's kind of pulling back to earlier when we were talking about how you know, for for me, like if I'm like jamming games the night before top eight, or like I'll probably just play like you know five games for matchup that kind of thing, or less even. Um, and a lot of that's because right there are some. So when you think about those. There's 20 color combinations in this game, right? So you can't like even if you're just saying like. You know how long how long would it take to play five games of every color combination into every other color combination? That's nineteen plus eighteen plus seventeen plus sixteen. Da 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 da. Right. So it's a lot of games. That's a lot of games, and that's just color combinations, not even archetypes. But you know, you get different archetypes within each color combination. Sure. Yeah. So each, each so the sheer, the sheer volume everything. of the sheer volume of possibilities in the game is is so infinite that you can't actually just practice everything and play everything. And that's where like pattern recognition comes in and being able to anticipate and identify trends without actually having played them. Mm. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Now, DBN, you were saying earlier that most of the games that you've played at at a higher level don't have three decks or four decks with bands and all that yeah. stuff. You, you come with a deck. So I guess that is, that's a little different in Tessel. Maybe that's just a different in digital card games in general, right? Because I think even I think most physical well, card games you don't come with multiple decks. Well, so also like digital card games are faster. So I mean, turn timers don't exist in. I mean, maybe they should. Um, and there might, I mean, <laughs> there might be Magic tournaments that do that. I've heard that they've, but not at the highest level. I don't if think. If you play on MTGO, they do. Yeah, but um, but like you know having. Physical card games, people take longer on their turns. They they have a really tough line, and they sit there and consider it for you know up to five minutes before you know you start looking at them funny, and they don't want you to call the judge over for stalling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I hate like paper tournaments so much, it's so <laughs> long. Uh, it, yeah, I mean like like for example, I mean I the the last major L five R tournament I went to was uh the last major one I went to was like March I want to say. Um, so it's been a while actually, there hasn't been a lot of ones close enough to me that I can drive. Um, but, um, and I played, let's see, I played, uh, five rounds of Swiss and then in the bracket, it was was top eight, top four and final. So that was, uh, eight, eight matches. 
right? Sure. And I was there from nine o'clock uh, in the morning when it started to 11 p.m. <laughs> okay, like that's 14 so hours. You, just, there, you just have to remember, like, so it's yeah. But with digital card games, the games don't rare. They games very rarely last longer than 20 minutes. You know, because turn timers keep things moving. Um, and I think also sure. when people don't have their opponents sitting there fidgeting and they don't have the voices behind them of all the other games happening, they can think clearer, they can think faster. And they're, I think with digital, when you don't have somebody looking at you, there's not that much, uh, you know, anxiety about, you know, uh, somebody judging me too hard when I make a, a different line or a weird line. I just think like it moves faster, you know, well, it's even just logistically faster, right? Yeah, oh, when, yeah. When you have to just check into a match on Battlefy and then challenge your opponent and the client versus like going and finding the pairing sheet and wandering yeah. around and finding your table and where's my yeah. opponent? Oh, they're in the bathroom. Can we get a five minute extension of <laughs> right. round timer? Yeah. Now, now he's eating like, a walking taco. It's another five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah. Oh, oh man, right. he dropped all his his deck. All right, fifty. You know, eighty card yeah. pickup in the case of of L five R. You know. Yeah. Where'd my dice go? Like, yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, there's just a lot more to consider there, but like, yeah. I and think also that, just Swiss, Swiss yeah. is Swiss takes way longer than brackets because you have to wait yeah. for everyone to finish. Well, and yeah, because just... like the bracket can continue, you know, while other people, <clears> so like the bracket can keep going unless you have a casted match, but Swiss can't continue until everybody's done. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I mean, that it's a whole, it's a whole nother thing, but do I think that like these other games would benefit from an ideal world where time could be managed much better bringing multiple decks? Yeah, honestly, I think there would be yeah. like, I, I imagine like, well, maybe not L5R to be completely honest. Um, but like, I remember yeah. like versus system, I played the crap out of versus system. That was the first game I took ultra seriously. Um, and I mean, I, I played a lot of, uh, uh, I mean, that was a superhero card game, but I played a lot of Spider-Man control. I mean, so Spider-Man could web up people. Makes sense. That's right? awesome. That's a thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> That's so yeah. Uh, yeah. Spidey, Spidey control was my was my main. I have it. Control. I have it right here, dude. It's almost completely. It's almost completely blinged out. Uh, That's great. But I played the crap out of that, and I, I mean, I got yeah. so good with it. I had different. I had like three different builds that I had like the same sleeves where I could slot in based on what uh, tech I expected to see at a tournament, like what what environments I expected to see and stuff like that. Um, but if I'm being honest, this would not have been as potent of a deck. And, I mean, and trust me, I mean, it was one of the higher skill cap decks to play in the game, but it was also, like, you know, really freaking good. It would not mm-hmm. have been as potent had there been the ability to bring multiple decks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, or that, ban. Or ban, right. I mean, oh, my mm-hmm. God. If the Spidey could be banned, I, I don't know what I would have been doing. You know what I mean? Like, the, I think that that's one thing digital card games have right. That's one thing I think digital card games like have over paper card games is just that like it really forces um, more flexible, versatile players. Because at that point in my career, I mean, I was uh, I, I competed from uh, throughout high school through the first two years of college uh, at, at like pretty big events, you know, at least for the game when I played it. Right. And um, I mean, I, I wasn't a complete player. I was a very specialized player. You know, I was mm-hmm. really good at what I was good at. You know, but I mean, you ask me to play, you know, an, an aggro deck or an aggro by our understanding of aggro, not necessarily per the game, but, um, and I would have been in a, a little bit of a rougher position had I had to bring three lists yeah. and let Spidey be banned, you know? Mm. And that is one of the reasons why we see that for the most part, I mean, there, there have been exceptions, but like, please don't act me as a good example of that, but, um, by the way, please, mo- don't act, 
please don't hack me. He's beat me on ladder like three times recently. I don't know <laughs> nice. how I keep queuing up against him. I don't know. He's playing at the same time as me. I don't know what keeps happening. He keeps crushing me. I appreciate it if he quit crushing oh, no. me. That would be great. <laughs> but I was going to say, you know, I mean, outside of a few exceptions, um, like him, he's a fantastic player. Most most of the top players, you know, really are, aren't are like specialists. Like he, he's an example of someone who's like a real like combo control specialist. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the top players can play anything yeah. really and, and are quite proficient in anything um you know so when we look at you know like foldy or caracon frenzy super like all these like all these people like if they need to play control tribunal they got it if they need to play agroclawloo they got it if, yeah they need to play mid bm they got it like it's not like yeah yeah sure, we don't, we, we don't see people uber specialize as much and that's largely because um you can't if yeah. you want to, if you want to be able to adapt and build different lineups of different games, you know, in Magic, you can kind of get away with, yeah, Paul Rietzel is always playing, or I'm probably just the wrong person, but it's always playing their, or oh, Craig Wesco, sorry, Craig Wesco is always playing as like, you know, uh, you know, one drop mono white weenie decks, right? Yeah. You know, and you got people who are like, you know, only like, you know, Gabriel Nassif's like only playing blue white Esper control like every tournament, every format. Mm-hmm. You can, and they can get away with that because, well, you're only playing one deck, and mm-hmm. you know you can kind of tune your deck in a certain way. And if, and it's kind of a similar thing with hustle, where yeah, if you're playing best of ones and ladder, yeah, you can play control tribunal in any meta and tune it in different directions and be uber greed, be really aggressive, basically a mid range deck. Like, you know, you can tune a single deck in all kinds of different ways for different metas. But um, if you if you uh, if you want to play Tesla tournaments at a really high level, it requires you to be able to play different lineups and different metas, and like you know that you have to play a diversity of archetypes yeah. uh, in order to to build different different lineups, different metas. Generally, versatility is just something that matters so much more when you have to play and bring more than one deck. Yeah, for sure. It's also worth noting too. You're talking about like you know the ability to do that in physical versus digital. Yeah. Um, one of the main reasons why you know, that isn't done in physical just because it increases the barrier to entry significantly. Physical True. cards mm-hmm. tend to be way more expensive than digital cards to acquire. Yes. It's way yeah. easier to get a big collection in Tesla than it is like in Magic, right? You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's can already... You, can you it, imagine already, deck check-ins yeah. with three decks? <laughs> right, yeah. It's, it's already like, you know, an absurd fi- fi- financial investment to buy like one Magic deck, right? You know, yeah. like hundreds, you know, depending on the format, thousands of dollars for, for, sing- yeah. for single decks. Like... Sure. You know, you're it, like, you're like checking like, in three decks for a modern tournament, and you check in forty six thousand dollars worth of cards <laughs> before you get to play. For right. Them. I mean, like, you know, for me, like that's one of the main reasons why I never really pursued Magic competitively. Is I didn't have interest in playing a stock market simulator, and I didn't want to spend that kind of money on cards to play competitively. Because if I wanted to play competitively, I wanted to play with optimal lists. I wasn't going to play with budget lists, right? So it's already hard enough to get people to play. You know games like that with one deck so imagine trying to tell them oh actually yeah you need to go buy four decks now like what people just aren't going to play the game so yeah, true um yeah a- a- again this is one of the things that's really nice about digital is we can get away with some of this stuff where it's like yeah this is a more complex and really interesting gameplay experience and i i love the multi-deck formats i know there's some people who are you know who are against it from other games who honestly i think it's largely just because they don't have experience with playing in them but i mean i I love multi-deck formats, and I, I I think it adds so much complexity to to the game. And, and frankly, it's like one of my favorite parts about playing Dessel is like lineup design and construction. Um, That's a whole and, different level of strategy. 
Yeah, it's a whole different. It's a whole different thing. I mean, it's part of the reason why I think there there are times where you know when there aren't tournaments going on where I, I have a really hard time engaging with the game because for me, like playing best of one just isn't playing Kessel because I spent so much time, uh, you know, preparing for and playing in tournaments that for me, like you know, best of five tournament play that's what Tesla is, mm. and it's just like you know when you're not when you're not building with these multi deck formats, it's like I feel like I'm not even playing the game sometimes. Um, mm. It's because it's just such a different animal. Yeah, um, but yeah. Well, I tell you what, let's let's do a little transition here out of specifically, you know, our first questions were really about tournament play. These are more about deck building, right? Okay. Um, yeah. So, um, so when a set comes out, uh, do you begin developing? How do you begin developing new decks with the new cards um, uh, and seeing how like that set that set will be implemented? Um, and then, it, really, the question is like, we know that you and um, and Matty Borch were two of the guys who were developing that Invade combo deck that sort of mm-hmm. took the ladder by storm, got nerfed in like three days, um, and is still being experimented with. So, how do you discover something like the Invade combo? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think broadly, when you're first looking at a set, like it's important to um, try to get an idea of like what existing archetypes you think cards can slot into. Um, and also, um, you know, and, and also start, you know, start to evaluate when, when, th- when there are things that are newer, um, you know, what, try, you know, try to get a, you know, basic evaluation higher level about, you know, whether new archetypes can emerge. It is very rare that new archetypes do emerge because, um, there's the card pool so large, but it does happen. Um, I mean, I guess it depends on what you define as a new archetype, right? But, um, you know, for, for for something that's like completely different from everything that's been done so far to show up at the highest levels of competitive play, like it has to be something extremely powerful going on, right? Um, and so Invade, Invade was really, the main combo deck was really a, a, an aberration and it's extremely abnormal that something like this happens. Um, so I'll say for me um, that I am, uh, with my perspective on the metagame and what I tend to contribute to it is I am very much when it comes to deck building um, uh, focused on like deck refinement and optimization um, and and like I my skill set is largely about like how to take you know how to take concepts and then turn them into and then like maximize their potential um, okay. and Maddie is someone who's much more like, like very experimental so he just kind of does like all kinds of off the wall shit like just you know, anything and everything. Um, and, you know, most of it doesn't stick, but every now and then something sticks and that's kind of what happened with Invade. Um, so, I mean, the main reason that, you know, I, he was the one that like got, got me to even try it in the first place. And then I went and worked on it a bunch on, on my own and refined it a, a bunch, but, you know, full credit to him for telling me that I should be paying attention to it because um, I wasn't really, uh, I think when I had, when the set first came out, the first kind of, experimental things they did with that were more kind of utilizing it in more of like a mid-rangey type package where it was basically just like um you know like uh using like trying to find ways to use invade as like a supplemental synergy thing rather than like a dedicated otk combo deck mm-hmm. um and i hadn't been finding like just from you know the games i'd played with that i hadn't been finding that that you know was really very compelling um and i think that's kind of largely what i was doing is i was playing the cards the way that they were designed to be played sure um, yeah and um you know and it, it there it 
didn't seem like it was really obviously standing out as powerful. Um, you know, so I, I abandoned the more kind of like just board-based uh, builds pretty quickly. Um, and, and, on, and I will say though too, that like, you know, that I think it'd be wrong to, to take the lesson from that, that like, okay, you know, don't, don't always focus on, on those types of builds because I think that the most important or the most common way that you can utilize new cards when they come out is by looking at ways that, um, uh, that they aren't like the dominant synergistic effect going on, but they can supplement strategies sure. because the great majority of the decks of the decks in the game um when the game is balanced are not like you know you know type a keyword in the search in the search box and put in every card with that keyword dot deck yes yeah 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 right like and and when the game is balanced well that should never be a deck right like jay so, druid and hearthstone was a mistake that should never that should never have existed yeah, right yeah. um so and and it's important to realize that you know game designers are going to design their games in to avoid that happening right um so for and the, and the way to look at this right is like um there have been and are some powerful decks that utilize wax wane synergistic effects and moon gates and stuff but they're not you know shove every card with wax wane on on it in the deck decks right mm -hmm. like most of the powerful ones we've been seeing recently have been ones that are kind of hybridized with some like support synergy stuff going on and that kind of thing so Usually, when we look at the ways that um, new types of cards can be integrated into decks, um, we're looking at hybridizing different types of strategies, right? We're not just like, okay, like dumping everything in in, in a deck. Um, and so, again, it's important to note that the way that Invade kind of worked out is kind of an anomaly, and it was somewhat discovered too, because I think we didn't. I'm not sure if we knew initially on release that um, gates were going to cost zero, and that you know, people. It took people a little bit to kind of figure out the whole thing with bouncing gates and resummoning more gates um, and what that could allow you to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I think like, you know, this was a, this was a moment for me. I, I know my intuition and my pattern recognition told me, you know, that, or told me the, the wrong thing um, where, you know, my, my assumption going in was that this was going to be another nothing and end up being super powerful. And it, it took, you know, no time for me to realize that and then start, you know, working on it. I mean, like the very first builds of this deck, we had, we didn't even have like close call on the deck to begin with. Like I had to go add that and stuff. So, um, uh, sure. And yeah. I think that one of the things that I think is interesting is you have moons of elsewhere and you have oblivion that came out back to back and you have two very different experiences with moons. It was easy to see from the beginning. Here's Elfie conjurer. This is going to be really good in the meta. This slots in, but you're never going to put this in a deck that you search for the word consume and then throw it in. Right. It's not powerful. Yes. Consume is part of the card, but it's not powerful because you're playing in a consume deck. Whereas when we came to gates of oblivion or jaws of oblivion, um, it was very, very different because they put so much into the oblivion and the, and the the invade keyword that it was almost as though like if this set is going to produce anything that's going to be meta defining, it's not going to be something that just slots in. It's going to be something that creates something new 
and it's going to linger around invade. Now, I understand that there's been some stuff that has been produced since then, but when it came to invade, invade really wasn't didn't end up being something that you could supplement an existing archetype with and have it be successful. It was like you kind of had to be all in with it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that that. in some ways, though, I think that's a flaw in design. I don't want to be too critical because, um, I mean, these games are super hard to design, and I think the designers have done an incredible job. I think that Tesla is one of the best card pools I've seen in any CCG. Um, in, I mean, I think Tesla has got, even has a great core mechanical rule set, but independent of that, like, the amount, like, the, the, the power level of cards in Tesla is so flat compared to most CCGs. Like, so many cards are viable. There's so many options at each spot in the curve. Like, we have an incredible card pool and an incredible design team. But, I mean, I think this, this clearly was a mistake, right? Um, and these things generally should, you know, should be, uh, implemented in a supplemental way. Um, and I think the fact that there was this combo deck that came up, um, you know, shouldn't have happened basically. Mm. Um, you know, they've changed that quick too. Yeah. I, I mean, and the combo deck is still pretty strong. I mean, I'm not sure. Well, you know, time will tell how, how good it'll end up being, but but yeah, we've ended up that there is there is this combo deck. It, it's in the game now. It, that you know, how strong they want it to be, they can adjust. But it's going to exist in, unless they you know make some more fundamental changes. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, was there? I'm, I feel like I'm missing the initial question here. Or was, I, I, I no, I think I think that we addressed it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I think that we did. I don't know, DBN. Do you have anything to chime in on there though about? Uh... You know, just like when a, when a set comes out, the cards you're looking at, how do you how do you discover something new? Or no, because no. I, I I mean I I mean we're focusing on competitive right now, and as a predominantly content focused person, as opposed to competitive focused person, um, as much as I have a vested interest in the competitive scene, when there's tournaments to be casted, uh, <laughs> right now there are not tournaments to be casted. Therefore, my focus is on fun. Uh, and so, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, we can talk about how I identify fun interactions, but that's so subjective that I don't think it's worth talking about, at least in the context of our greater conversation. To to, to chime in briefly, I think if, if your goal is competitive success, I think it's really important to, to say that I think one of the most common mistakes I see people making is trying to build these decks in a really one-dimensional way uh, around um, like at least surface-level synergistic effects, ignoring the more like tactical synergy, right? So I think you know it's very it's very common that I'll, you know when I I'll, I'll do like deck doctoring on stream and stuff like I'll get someone will send me a deck and it's basically like again they typed expertise in the search bar and put every deck with ex- or every card of expertise mm-hmm. on it in the deck, right? It's very, or people, that's that's the whole, that's the thing with like Slay Scout, right? Which is this like phenomenon where it's a thing that you see like very frequently on on ladder, even though it doesn't have like, it's like, it doesn't even make sense. It's like, what even is it? It's like, it's a, it's a bunch of cards that say Slay on them. And I think a lot of people listening might be like, well, yeah, that's what it is. It's a bunch of cards that say Slay on them. But from a competitive perspective, a bunch of cards that say Slay on them is not a strategy. It's just a thing yeah right <laughs> that is that is a thing and it is a pattern but it is not a tactical strategy um it's not it, a, because it very much matters what they do after they slay it's you know like you know, right you, that's, that's just that's because not, everything a, has the yeah just because everything it's has not, that. it's not a win condition in its own right right it's, right, it's like okay yeah. so what what does that mean yeah. so okay yes you have synergy with brotherhood sanctuary sure that's a thing but okay what how are you actually trying to win the game like, anyway yeah, so i think condition, there's no point in playing the deck 
Right. So broadly, my the biggest piece of advice here that I want to kind of just when you are looking at new cards, right, is, you know, yes, the, the you know, individual synergistic or like matchup things matter, right? Like Execute is a good card against Daggerfall Mage. Like that's what, you know, Mark, you were talking about earlier about like looking for like ways to counter certain cards mm-hmm. and you know, things synergize in similar ways, right? Like anything that buffs a creature's strength. Uh, or power, I don't remember what's called in this game, is, is good, is, you know, pairs well with warded creatures, right? Like, Seda Neen is good with, with, uh, Windkeep Spellsword. Like, you know, mm. those cards are synergistic. Uh, there, there's that kind of stuff. Um, where was I going with this? So there are, there are those, th- those types of synergistic things, but you have to be thinking too about just like, you know, um, uh, you know, in this current, uh, you know, powerful deck, uh, you know, what, what, at what points in the curve from a mana cost perspective uh at where 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 is where is uh where is the color or the color combination weak like what at what what mana costs mm-hmm. you know what what in what areas can can that deck be improved or what resources or what what type of effect is a deck lacking so like an example of that might be like gold initiate is not uh, it's a uh, willpower yellow three mana uh, three three drain prophecy card is not like you know exceptionally strong um, but it still makes its way into a great majority of mid-range control yellow decks. And one of the main reasons for that is just because a lot of decks lacked life gain. Additionally, mm-hmm. uh, there were a lot of decks that had uh, a big hole at the three slot. So even though the car was nothing to write home about, was nothing like, you know, world-ending, you know, mind-blowing, uh, incredible slam-dunk card, there was this kind of perfect storm where there were a bunch of these decks that had a really severe lack of three drops and this could slot in there and also really looking for some more sources of life gain and this provided that so like things come up like that all the time or even though okay it's not like you're looking for like a really surface level synergy um like you have to look at you know tactically where 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 decks uh you know or need help and that, that sure, type, sure. That, that's that's the that's the more more important thing to be lo- looking at when new cards come out is like how you know how can they impact existing archetypes and that kind of thing how do they slot yeah. how do they help that was another thing with alfeek right like mid bm was great but there was a lull around the sixth slot that allowed them to create multiple threats at a time that would allow them to push damage and beat some of the control yeah. decks that were removing their threats. The six drops yeah, that it's... were there didn't do what Alfiq does. And so like you have like Candy Crush and Telvas and you know they they all do separate things compared to like oh, let me summon a couple like two different bodies, one protected, you know, uh, the other one doesn't die to ice storm. Like it's a very it offers a different option at the slot, which I think yeah. is kind of what we're looking, we're talking about. It's kind of, it's kind of an interesting example, actually, because um, as much as like Alfie obviously ended up being insane in BM, like ended up being insane in a lot of places. But like for me personally, I I, I remember when the card came out, I felt like you know there was a there was a chance that like even though I was certain it would go into like you know some of the decks like you know Sorcerer. Um, I wasn't like a hundred percent that it that it would go into in, into BM, and the re- rationale for that at the time was that actually BM did have a lot of strength in that in that point in the game, right? You already you already did have uh, blood dragons and cradle crush giants and sill and belligerent giants and uh, mighty conjurings, right? You did have a lot of these you know these cards in the in the you know in the mid game mid to late game that were these really heavy hitters, so. Um, 
And of course, Alphix ended up being such a high power level that yet you made room. You cut your blood dragons and put in Alphix, right? Mm-hmm. You, you know, it was just a, it was an upgrade. But that wasn't an instance where where BM really, really lacked a, really lacked a, a spot at that point in the, or like lacked a, um, lacked something that could fill that role at that point in the curve. Um, but it was more just like it was an upgrade on the, from a perspective of just raw power level, where it, it just overperformed the, the comparable cards. And the, it was it was a really strong card. Yeah, it is a really strong card. Yeah, Yeah. it's still a good card. (laughs) Still very good. I haven't played with it in a while. I haven't played with it in a while. I haven't seen Um, it as much. I think people are just looking at doing different things, at least on ladder right now. I think there's mm -hmm. just a different. I mean, when when we're not. I mean, I don't want to get into this, but like, I think that I I feel like ladder shifts very heavily with the winds of what's being talked about, you know, Mm -hmm. and and so like you know. When the Master Series around and everyone's talking about Alfik, you're seeing way more Alfik, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. now you're we're not talking about really any one thing now that kind of Invade combo has been per, per, nerfed and perceived to be less playable, whether that ends up being the case or not. Um, I mean, right now, there's not a lot being specifically one thing being talked about, and yet, you know, here we go, ladder is pretty wide open. I imagine in a month, when something else is just dominating the conversation, we're going to see a lot of it. That's just kind of how it goes. Yeah, so, I mean, this is a really important thing to know. Like, so there's a classic um, uh, study that about how um, if you get, like, you know, a ton of people from a really diverse range of backgrounds, and without letting them talk to each other, you have them guess the weight of a cow, like some certain cow, they're going to, they'll collectively, if you get a really high number of people, they'll collectively get super close to the actual weight of the cow. Um, like you get, like, you know, 10, 100,000 people, right? Um, but one of the things is that, you know, when people, you know, that, that type of situation rarely occurs in real life. And in real life, people influence each other's decisions and influence each other's perspective perceptions and this is something that's really important in in ccgs because if people were truly independently of each other trying to come up with decks that they they thought were good in in the meta um then you know the average deck that someone would come up with would be like the optimal deck right because we'd get you know this huge range of players and different perspectives but the thing is that people people heard um people don't uh people people don't just do everything off their own intuition and ignoring each other people heard a ton and so we end up just seeing people you know, doing lots of patterns of things and going down rabbit holes that are, that are with, you know, people like someone makes a mistake and then someone else sees that mistake, but thinks it's not a mistake. And then and then those things just compound on each other forever. Right. And so we end up in these really weird directions where like people think certain cards are really good and huge portions of people are playing them when like, it's just not correct for them to be doing so. But because people naturally heard and pay attention to each other are doing other than analyzing themselves or, you know, don't have the, know know with all to you know to, to come to analyze those cards and try to figure out what's optimal on their own you know people just copy what they see around them so mm. um yeah basically you know that one of the most important things to remember is um you don't know what you're talking about but neither does anybody else <laughs> um, like That's you know a great way of putting it <laughs> like like you shouldn't you shouldn't respect that other people like kn- know what 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 is optimal which should be played you also shouldn't respect that you know what's optimal and should be played i think one of the, the biggest mistakes people make is is like um is assuming that like the top players have like some perfect understanding of the game like i am one of the top players i can tell you there is so much we do not know about this game like it is unbelievable how poorly it is understood 
now again, compared to the average person obviously i understood standing game like you know you know way 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 beyond but the, the point is that like you know we're all, everyone's always learning and if you put yourself in a perspective that you know everything you think you know isn't certain like anything you think you know is is probably wrong to some to some degree everything you know everything is subjective and the more the more that you try to like you know nail things down in this concrete way where like x is right and x is wrong those, the more you're gonna prepare yourself from learning if you let everything be fluid and just let yourself continually reevaluate everything if you allow yourself to say oh i was wrong maybe i was right maybe i was wrong again i don't know now i think i'm wrong again maybe now i think i'm right like or i mean and the gradations of that where it's not, not everything is just right and wrong right but the more you allow yourself to be fluid in your perceptions of the game and the more you allow yourself to just listen to what other people other people say and to not take out anything as right or wrong but just you know just listen to it and uh and digest it and think about it um and you know think about how it applies to what you think and um think about why that person came to that conclusion like the more you just digest information the better um yeah that's... I, didn't, I, I didn't need any words of wisdom for this episode no. There you go. There, 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 there's life application there. That goes <laughs> way beyond just the. Well, I tell you what, I think we have time for, for one more conversation point. And I think this is maybe the funnest one that we have left. And that is what card were you most right about? And what card were you most wrong about from Gates of from the Gates of Oblivion, Jaws of Oblivion expansion? Well, this is, this is one for all three of us. Let me yeah, pull up Legends decks real quick and let me hold up. take a look. Um, DBN, do you like off the top of your head know which card you were most right about and which card you were? It's it's hard to tell because the meta shifted back and forth so much with the combo anomaly in the middle of it. Um, yeah, but just out of curiosity, did you have like a Legends decks too? Because okay. I know if I look at the the cards, I'll be able to tell you which one. I so I I would I would say Faded Wraith, um, but it's only because we had such little information about what the other cards around it were. You know, and I kind of stand by my opinion that, like, my original impression of it was extremely flawed because when we previewed it and had to make a judgment on it, we didn't have a very good understanding of what else was involved in the set. So, sure, but even when I saw the entire set, I, and I even, still didn't think Faded Wraith. Faded oh, Wraith well, great. I mean, I even said and it's not. <laughs> well, I mean, but compared to us, like, our original interpretation of it is dust largely i mean my I mean, my that, other that's still my interpretation of the card <laughs> uh, i don't know i i don't i really don't I think mean... it's at that point um i mean plus like dust for you versus dust for us uh is a little bit different i mean dust yeah for, it's different dust yeah. for ian is it has to be completely unplayable if i can make something that's tier right, no, two or three of course it's not completely unplayable but yeah, yeah then i'll, I, I'll still yeah. do it let me look at this yeah. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think lower of the card than many than many strong players do, for what it's worth. But yeah, sure, 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 sure. Look at this. Um, so I was trying to think through some of the stuff from Jaws and some of the cards that um, I thought were going to be uh, really good, and some of the cards that I, I didn't think were going to be really good. And it, it it is kind of hinged a little bit upon. Um, I think I think it, it, mine hinges a little bit upon like the invade combo. Um, but I definitely did not think that uh, Invasion Party was going to be a good card. And with that, I really did not think that Dramora Adept were going to be good cards. I thought they were both going to be 
pretty bad. And um, even with the Invade being nerfed, I still think that they're not awful. Um, but those were two cards that I definitely thought were going to be really bad that obviously with the Invade deck, the combo deck that came out, at least for those handful of days, were were not bad at all. Those, those were decks that I was definitely, or cards that I was um, definitely wrong about. And honestly, to a certain, I don't know, I, I don't, maybe I haven't been playing, but Dusk Eater Skirmisher, I think I over, I thought was better than what it, maybe it's, maybe it's actually really good. It's just not seeing as much play, but oh, I think it's incredible. Yeah. No, I mean, I'll say for myself, like I, I, I put Dusty Eater Skirmisher as my number one card in the set. And that's actually what I was going to say is the card that I think I, you know, I, I hit on the head the most is I think I, I, I said, I thought that card was insane and I, Still think it is. I think it's probably the best one drop in the game, which is also what I said when it got revealed. Mm. Um, card is just nuts. I mean, it just trade. It just trades into everything. It trades into most two drops. Um, so, like, yeah, the card is ludicrous, and I think you know shapes the game in a lot of ways. Uh, I think you know it made stuff aside. I think I gave a lot of the invade cards kind of like you know two and a half threes of like you know, hey, this is you know looks like you know you know, decently powerful paper, maybe it'll get there, but like, doesn't, doesn't seem insane. Probably not likely to get there. Okay. Clearly it got there, not in the way that I thought. Um, but I think probably more, you know, that that's kind of like, I don't know, that, that's one thing, but uh, more like individual card level. Um, I kind of, I overlooked Marauder Chieftain um, when the set first got spoiled. And that card I think is quite strong. Um, mm -hmm. I think it slots into a decent amount of red aggro decks quite well. And it's a card I didn't think enough about. Um, I mean, with with time, it you know, the curve's pretty expensive at four, and it's kind of weird to say that these days. But you know, aggro decks curves get lower and lower, so you know, the number of four drops you have at your disposal is limited. But I think that in in certain red aggro decks, definitely, like I had written that card off as like pure unplayable, and I still don't think it's great, but I, I think it is still, I think it is quite strong in certain decks. So that's one area I think I was wrong for sure. Mm. Uh, I'm looking through here, and it's alarming how many cards I was wrong about. <laughs> I'm. I'm actually not confident that I'm finding a card that I was right about. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a, uh, uh, well, I guess I did. I mean, if Endo says that Dusk Eater Skirmish is the best one drop in the game, then I guess I was right about that because Dusk Eater Skirmish was one that I thought was really good. But I'm just like looking through and I'm like, holy cow, was I right? Was I literally right about any of the cards and like my initial opinions of them? Not, not really. Not as it turns out. Don't listen to me. Um, my, that <laughs> my, my interpretation of the set, even when we were, when we were looking at it, was um, the set overall is pretty low power. Um, it's just that invade mm. because so many cards are invested in invades. Like so much of the right. set, there's a limited invested. number of cards that can really affect because yeah. yeah. Um, but okay. I will say, let's see the two. Like there's two cards that I think I. Uh, overestimated, which there, I mean, uh, the first, it was more from a, from, I thought this would slot into my kind of memeier build and it, I ended up cutting it cause it was just too slow, which is the Maroons Dagon's flare. Mm -hmm. Um, it's mm -hmm. the, it, the fact that it can't hurt itself is the problem with this card. The fact that it can't da deal one damage to itself makes this mm -hmm. card really tough because you can't play this out as your only card. It's definitely um, kind of win more. It's it's like, extremely win more, and it really doesn't help you win that win more that much. Like I would much rather play a covenant plate uh, or something in that spot. Anything else really in that spot, and and so I I think when I first evaluated it, I expected it to be able to 
hit itself, and if I, upon reading uh, closer, you know, it, well, it's only another friendly creature, which is disappointing. Um, but even then, I would have looked at its stats. It's it's got the five defense, so it can absorb some trade, you know, some things in the Fighters Guild Hall. I knew I was going to be able to tutor with World. Yeah, of it's Wander. got the Dark Guardian Stone. It can't be that bad, right? Right, and it's just the effect is worthless. I'd rather play something. I'd rather play Dark Guardian. I'd rather play Dark Guardian. Uh, and yeah. then mm-hmm. Defensive Bruma is the other one that, like, I think I was really, really concerned about, and I'm. I mean, I don't think it's garbage. I just, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not concerned. But that was the card. I was like, yeah. oh god, do we need more like board buffing, like mercenary captain, you know, divine? For do we need more of this? And it gives guard. Like that was really concerning to me. And it can be discounted. Um, but I'm, I'm less concerned about it now. So I guess those are two things. Yeah. This is a fun talking point. Another one of the cards that I uh, had. Well, was one of my top top cards in the set um, initial review uh uh was mountain lion which i still think is uh super nuts um and i know that's not something that every, a lot of people have uh, come over to yet but yeah, in the really low curve aggro decks um where you're where you are consistently hitting uh like hitting turn two um already it basically is a two mana four three it's just basically with the cards it's a, it's a two mana four three that you can't play on turn two or can't play before you have access to three mana. Um, yeah. Which, if, if you think about, you know, yeah, I mean, you think about Mournhold Trader or even like Slinking Jackal, right? I think the card is like just basically a strict upgrade over Slinking Jackal in, in most mm-hmm. decks because um, because m- most decks that are cur- that are curbing, that would play Slinking Jackal are curbing so low that you, you're not worried about having to hit your two. Um, so I think a lot, I think that's a card that I'm really, really high on that the community is at, on, at large isn't. Um, hasn't fully cut onto yet. I've, I've had success with that card as well, and I, I, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a two mana four three. Let's just be real. You, yeah. You want, yeah. You want, you want to know something funny? Huh. When this, when this set first came out, and we talked about it the day it came out, I literally said that Great Sigilstone was a safe craft. That, <laughs> <laughs> and that card doesn't, and that that card uh, doesn't even see play in a big combo. <laughs> Uh, it's just yeah i I called it a safe a safe craft well it's like why am i don't listen to me like just go listen to somebody else when it comes to that sort of stuff it's it's, it's like hopefully you're listening to the podcast because you like my voice because you're not getting a whole heck of a lot else out of it i i I don't know i i try to avoid i mean i try to avoid making like any sort of uh economy-based claims uh, because of <laughs> you know good. I've I've had you know things where I was so sure about something and ended up being wrong or was like really unconvinced and it's like oh no th- that it's real. I have to say I I once we saw hand buff stuff. I and even before even if I'd seen this earlier, like I looked at determined supplier and I'm still interested in it. You know. Yeah. Like, I look at Determined Supplier, and I guess it's just – the issue here is, like, Thorn Hist Mage exists, and Thorn mm-hmm. Hist Mage is just better, and Treeminder does what this will do without Synergy pretty much at one mana lower. But I look at Determined Supplier, mm-hmm. and I, I just wonder. I say, maybe if there's a big rotation, maybe this could get played? I don't know. Like – 
The card is really good in certain decks. Yeah, uh, the question is just... how good those decks are. But I mean, the card is very powerful for sure. Yeah, it's, it's really, just... it is very powerful. Okay. I just mm. look at it and I'm just like, I want to do something with this. And every time I try to contemplate what that is, and this is something actually I was thinking about when you were talking earlier. And though I was thinking, you know, when I'm building a deck, you were talking about the idea of needing a win condition. And that's something that, like, I, I kind of try to pride myself on. I'm not perfect, but when I build a off-meta sort of themed deck, I always try to take it from the perspective, we're not going all in on this. We're taking what's good about it, trying to highlight it, and then playing good stuff around it. I mean, how many decks do I build that are themed decks that still have Barrow Stalkers and Skinned Hounds in it, right? Because those cards are just ridiculous. Wordcrafter, Shrieking Harpy, you know, etc. And I every time sure. I look at this, it I get that same impression of every time I want to build some different version of um, Agro Crusader, which is why bother? You know, why build a different version of Agro Crusader with with a with a tribal synergy or something besides the idea of it'll be it'll be amusing because you know if if you can do something better in the same color combination, I always just get that gut instinct of like, you get deflated. You're like, why bother? And this is another card that I just, every time I try to think about how I want to play this, you know, what are we really capitalizing off of an insane amount of magicka that can't be achieved through? I mean, even if it just, but that's the thing though. Like there are very few cards that let you ramp more than one. Um, And even if you just get that thing to two power, you know, through, you know, one type of AOB buff, right? Like a Divine Thriver or something. Even just that is a, you know, it's a very powerful effect. Um, so, I mean, I think that card is, you know, not far away from seeing seeing play. And there also are, are you know, have been and are a lot of decks that um, have strong win conditions based around getting to uh, high mana totals. So like Admin Heart, Rage of TKs, um, just particularly with this kind of card, if you're doing like, you know, if we're trying to get to like a you know a ton ton of mana, there's like the card that it's a sixteen sixteen breakthrough. If you have eighteen max mana or magicka, yeah, you're talking um, about the vampire one. Yeah, so like there's like there's like from hand OTKs you can do with that, where like that's the win con, right? You just ramp a ton, and then you can then you just play a sixteen sixteen breakthrough and rage, and that's a kill. Um, like so, there absolutely are are rewards ramping a ton, or even just traditional like you know old like just ox combo. Like there's all kinds of things you can do with a ton of mana. And again, we saw, I mean, we saw that this summer, right? Like when, when Rage of Van Hart was really strong, that that's what it was, right? Largely sure. it was a deck, deck that was, you know, getting a lot of the strength off, uh, off ramp. And, th- and that's always been one of the um, big matchup breakers in, in control matchups too. Like um, in metas where, uh, you know, where control is the level one of the format, meaning that it's kind of like the, the go-to, um, like the, the go-to standard deck and you're largely thinking about the control matchup. Like, um, uh, you know, a lot of it always like, again, please don't me. And I've t- uh, tested for, you know, prepped for tournaments and stuff a lot together. And one thing we always, we used to always joke about just like, you know, whoever, like whoever, like, Oh, that's not fair. You drew his mage. How, how can I win this game? <laughs> you, you drew his mage and I did, or even just like you drew, you drew tree minder and I didn't even, so ramp is super powerful in these slower, uh, more value oriented mashups um so is this a card that you think we could we could see hit competitive play oh yeah absolutely year yeah with the right meta i I think it's hard because you know with time the higher the higher power format you're in generally the faster games are 
um, the higher power format you're in, um, the more the more you can be punished for low tempo mm-hmm. plays. Um, you know, we're starting to see things where aggro decks can just kill you before Ice Storm, like things like that. <laughs> um, yeah. um, so you know, and with time, that's why there's there's some card like, there's some cards that just get more powerful in high level formats. Like like Scamp is an example of a card that's like you know when it came out wasn't very good, but just the, the longer it's out, the more powerful it's going to get because the lower curves get, the more powerful it is. This is kind of an inverse type thing where um, this is a card that's really powerful. It's just it's just very very powerful in a vacuum, right? I mean, vacuums certainly exist, but in the sense that like. If you have time to play out your in strategy, lower, yeah, in a lower power in a, format, in a, in a lower in a lower power environment, the, the ability to to ramp for for multiple at a time is is incredibly powerful. The question is just you know how much time do you really have? Because even control decks have tons of ways to apply really proactive pressure because you have to now. In in the higher por- the higher power format you're in, um, more important it is to have really fast proactive win conditions, even in your slower decks. Um, you need ways to, you know, once you have gained a, a tempo advantage to end the game quickly. Um, and this is definitely not playing towards that. So yeah. we'll see, you know, where we go long term. But I mean, I, I'm sure we w- we will see formats where, con- where control decks are good. Um, I mean, I argue that we're kind of in one of those now. But the thing is that control decks don't really look like people are maybe used to them looking like right now. They're really more kind of mid-rangey. Yeah. Um, sure. Yeah. So, you know, the, qu- the question is, you know, are we really going to get to a meta where ramp to 15 control is is really good in the future and i mean and i mean we probably will at some point right they get there's, there's enough time and whatever but um yeah yeah interesting well i tell you what guys i think that uh it, it's it's getting late we've uh i told endo like hey we'll get you on here for uh you know it'll be a little bit briefer and then it was just two hours so um, not quite briefer. I wouldn't call it briefer, um, but uh, it, it's been really great to have you on, Endo. I really appreciate you coming back on the show and giving us some insight, and you gave us some really, really awesome stuff. If people wanted to get connected with you uh, and what you're doing out there, how would they find you? Um, sure. So you can find me uh, on here on Twitch, or I guess even people might be listening to the podcast with people who are currently in the stream. Uh, I am on Twitch, uh, twitch.tv slash endozoa. Um, you can also find me on Twitter, uh, at endozoite, that's endo and then Z-O-I-T-E. Um, you can find me on Discord in many of the various Legends Discords, um, or my own Discord, which you can get a link to through my stream channel, um, or, yeah, the TRS Discord, the main Legends Discord, uh, the, the podcast Discord, um, Legends, Legends Class Podcast Discord, all kinds of Discords you can find me in. Um, you can contact me there. Um, and yeah, if you're interested in coaching, I offer coaching for legends, um, and, uh, also Mythgard other games. Um, if you're interested in that, then yeah, the easiest places to contact me are all three of those. So, uh, Twitch, Twitter, and Discord. Discord's the easiest, but it's probably the hardest to find me there. So, um, yeah. Okay. Awesome. Um, uh, GBN, how can people find what you're putting out there, uh, your content? Well, um, before I get into that, I just wanted to kind of give a personal testimony. Uh, You definitely, if you want to get better at a game, uh, it is time and money well spent getting coached by Indozoa. Uh, And I'm not just saying that because Indo is the guest, but because uh, there's been, every every time we sat down, 
it was a very personal experience and I genuinely picked up things that I remember as I'm playing to this day, very specific things that I'm like, hey, I remember that one time and I said I need to play that Steel Scimitar. Uh, and I think about that. You will find something in your time uh, working with Endo that will make you better at the game. Uh, mm. It is, um, you know, I, I've kind of dabbled with um, coaching slash, you know, kind of groups where people try to, you know, get help out with gaming. And I never really enjoyed it, but I will say that that is something that was worth my time at least uh, and definitely my uh, money. It's quite affordable, and Endo is a very skilled and, you know, very patient coach as well. Uh, so just check that out if you are so inclined. Now, I appreciate that. Thanks. As for me... Uh, <laughs> if you want to find the goofy stuff that I do, uh, in stark contrast, uh, twitch.tv slash deadbrokenerd. The deadbrokenerd is on YouTube as well. I post, uh, between, uh, two and four videos a week, uh, ranging from Elder Scrolls Legends to Mythgard to Gwent occasionally when I can, uh, put together a deck that is worth <laughs> writing home about um but uh i've got all sorts of stuff on there uh i've i'll do deck guides stream highlights i've recently started dabbling in um you know uh, playing versus games against other casters and stuff like that uh and team ups in 2v2 myth guard and stuff like that so all sorts of different kinds of content something for everybody i hope and if you have ideas let me know and then of course you can always feel free to message me on twitter uh, or on Discord because I love hearing from you guys. And if you have any questions or anything, I'm always happy to respond when I get a chance. So don't feel don't feel shy if you have a question or something, or if you want me to look at a deck list, I'll probably look at it and then link you one of Endos. <laughs> uh, well, for me, um, I'll, the only thing I'm going to say, um, if you want to support the show, go over to Patreon.com, search for Legends Cast. You can support the show over there. Our patrons get access to a special chat um, uh, on our Discord channel. Um, so thank you to those of you who are supporting us over on Patreon. I do. I can't remember if we have a new one since last week, um, but I don't know if I said anything about Martin. Um, Martin N., thank you so much for supporting us on the show. All those other individuals who are supporting us as well, thank you so much for supporting us over there. That's all I'm going to plug this week. Um, you can, of course, find me on the Discord, So as you can find these guys who join the Discord and come find me. Um, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Legends Cast, episode 22. Thank you so much for uh, for joining. Thank you so much for listening in. And make sure you come back next week to catch episode number 23. Thanks for listening to Legends Cast, a podcast about the cards, the meta, and the community of Elder Scrolls Legends. If you want to support Legends Cast, you can always leave us a rating and review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts, or you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash legendscast. Be sure to come back next week and make sure that you check out our sponsor, both Inked Gaming and Team Rankstar at teamrankstar.com. <laughs>